Well, we're in a series in the book of Mark, and it's called, uh, we've been calling it a biography of Jesus, a first century biography of Jesus. Uh, it is the first uh, written account of Jesus' life. So before this time, there were uh, fragments and oral traditions, but Mark is the first one in about 60 or 70 AD who wrote down the life of Jesus. And as we've been going through, we've been seeing story after story of Jesus, uh, healings and miracles and things like that. And tonight, or the, tonight, this morning, um, we come to a passage, uh, really the only passage in the whole book of Mark where Jesus does not make an appearance. Uh, this is a passage where uh, Jesus is not really present at all. It's a story about Herod and John the Baptist. Uh, and it's a story really about human sin. This is a dark, sordid, uh, evil story about the beheading of John the Baptist. And as we look at it, um, we, we learn not so much about, you know, more about who Jesus is, but this is a story that tells us about wh- how we are. Uh, this is a story that tells us about the depths of human depravity, uh, the story of Herod. And so we're going to get into it. And essentially what it is, it's a story uh, mostly of about Herod's uh, regret. Herod here in the story makes a decision that he deeply regrets. And I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever made a decision that you've regretted? Have you ever made a decision where you look back on it and you think, man, I wish I could just go back, if I could just rewind time and play that night over again or play that decision over again, uh, I would do it for just about anything. Have you ever made a decision that you've deeply regretted? Uh, My grandma tells a story about a decision that she regretted. Um, My my grandparents... uh, uh, when they were younger, they actually lived pretty comfortably. They made quite a bit of money. My grandfather was a doctor, and, and uh, they lived in a really nice area there in Long Beach, California. And, but by the end of her life, through a series of very bad financial decisions, uh, they, they had almost no money at all. Uh, they retired to Mexico, and I remember they lived in a trailer down in San Miguel uh, in, in Mexico. And we go down and visit them, and I remember my parents one time bought my grandma a a, a car because she couldn't afford it. And my grandma, I remember one time down in Mexico, she told us a story about this time that she made a a financial decision that she regretted. She said, we made a lot of bad ones, but there was one that was just really a doozy. And she said that, you know, about, you know, uh, when they're in their 30s, her and my grandfather, they had made some money, they were going to invest it. And they had narrowed it down to two different investments. And the first one was this new technology, uh, shark repellent. You know, it was this new thing. They lived by the coast there. And so there was a shark repellent that some, you know, entrepreneur was, had invented and was going to develop it or whatever. And then there was the other decision, this other opportunity. It was a small startup company called Disneyland. And so my grandparents looked at the two decisions and they thought, you know what, Disneyland, come on give me a break, and they invested, no joke, in shark repellent. And I remember hearing the story and thinking, Grandma, this could have changed my life forever, for all of our lives forever. But have you ever made a decision that you regretted? And I know this is sort of a silly uh, story, but I mean, have you ever made like a moral decision, a decision about sin that you wish you could go back and change? Maybe it was that night in college, and you think, man, if I could just go back and make a different decision. Or maybe it was that, that, that summer you decided to go into debt, you know, and, and take your girlfriend out to, uh, to dinner every night and spend all your school loan money on, on stupid things. That's me. I did that. Um, 
and you wish you could go back and just make different decisions that summer? Have you ever made a decision that you wish for the world you could go back and change? All of us, to some extent, live with regret. And, you know, we can't go back and change these things, but, you know, one thing we can do is we can go back and analyze what we did in the first place. You can't go back and change a decision that you regretted, but you can go back and ask the question, why did I do what I did? You can almost go back and do an autopsy and see what were the stupid things that led to this regretful decision. And the beauty of the story that we're going to look at today is it's almost a, an autopsy of Herod's regrettable decision. What Mark does here is he goes back and he says, yes, uh, Herod did this, and all the other gospel writers say that Herod beheaded John the Baptist. But what Mark does is he goes back and he begins to look step by step in detail how Herod ended up doing what he did. And he begins to take it apart and sort of do an autopsy and, and analyze the whole situation. And the reason why he does that, I believe, is to be a warning for us. He says, look, you don't want to end up like Herod. You don't, want, you don't want to make another stupid decision. Let's go back and do an autopsy of what Herod did. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I want us to see three things in the story. Uh, number one, we're going to see that Herod began with a dangerous compromise, which led, number two, to an opportune moment, and then finally, to a guilty conscience. And those are the steps downward, the dangerous compromise, which led to an opportune moment, which finally ended up in a guilty conscience. And so we'll look at those three things. And so first, let's look at the dangerous compromise. And uh, in order to get into that, we're going to look at some background here and just get us into the story. Let's begin in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John the Baptist, whom I, whom I've be, uh, or John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. And we'll stop there. And so we, we see here that Jesus, uh, his popularity is on the rise, and his name is on everyone's lips. Uh, you know, dead people are being raised, demon, demonized people are being delivered, uh, sick people are being healed, and Jesus has become wildly popular in the, in the Galilee area. And people have questions about his identity. And some said, you know, he's John the Baptist, and others says he's Elijah, and others says he's like one of the prophets. People are wondering, who is this Jesus anyway? And they're coming up with all these different answers, but then Herod comes along and he says, I know who he is. This is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Now, this is not Herod's intellect speaking. This is his conscience. Because look what happened. The story begins to rewind and shows us why Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. It says in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. And so a little background about who Herod was. Uh, we see here that John the Baptist is confronting Herod and saying, Look, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be married to Herodias. Why? Because Herodias is your brother Philip's wife. Now there's a backstory. 
uh, you know, Herod, there, there were many Herods in the New Testament, uh, but they all come from the same twisted dynasty. And I've got a little graphic that's going to come up on the screen that gives sort of the family tree. Is that going to come up? The family? No, it's not going to come up. <laughs> I'll just tell it to you. So uh, <laughs> Herod's dad was uh, Herod the Great. And you remember, this is the Herod in the Christmas story. And he's the guy who killed all the babies. Uh, he is the guy who killed three of his 12 sons. Um, Herod the Great was an evil, power-hungry man. I mean, he was just horrible. But with all of his sons, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Um, and so you've got his, he had his one son, Philip. And Philip was this lustful man who ended up marrying his, uh, his own niece. Really an incestuous, horrible relationship. But then there was Herod, and Herod was Philip's brother. And what happened was uh, uh, Herod had, a, had, a, um, had an affair with his brother Philip's wife, which was also his niece. Now, you could imagine that. You could imagine Thanksgiving dinner, right? Super awkward. Like, hey, Philip, how's it going? It's going fine if you didn't marry my wife, brother, right? So it was incestuous. It was nasty. It was... Um, adulterous what was going on and this adultery with uh, his brother Philip's wife became sort of uh, well known in the ancient world. Uh, Herod was married to a princess and her father uh, had a kingdom on the border of Israel and because he committed adultery on his, uh, Herod committed adultery on his daughter, the father started a war and Herod went out to war and famously he lost it. And Josephus says that uh, most people believed he lost the war because of what he did to John the Baptist. So here's Herod. He's incestuous. He is power-hungry, just like his dad. He has stolen his brother's wife. He's living in sin. It's this sordid, ugly affair. And into this debauchery steps John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the polar opposite of Herod, where Herod was weak and, and sinful and, and idolatrous and adulterous. John the Baptist was a man of character. He was a man with backbone, and he was a man who told the truth. And he steps into Herod's situation, and he looks straight at Herod, and he says, it's wrong, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he steps into this situation. He tells Herod the truth. And don't you wish there were more John the Baptist today who would just straight up tell the truth when it needed to be told? And if you ever have a John the Baptist as a friend, you better keep that friend. It's been said that enemies stab you in the back, but friends stab you in the face. <laughs> they tell you the truth even though it hurts. And so here's John the Baptist. He's telling Herod the truth. And it says here that, that although um, Herodias hated John the Baptist, I mean, she hated John for telling Herod the truth. I mean, John would just straight up call out their relationship. She wanted John dead. But it says here in verse 18 that, John actually, that Herod actually liked John. Or I'm sorry, 19. It says Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Interesting. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I mean, this is fascinating. So here John is calling out Herod on, on, in his, into his face. And yet Herod doesn't want to kill John. He's not even angry at John. It says that he kept John safe. He actually protects him. And not only does he protect him, Herod actually admires John. 
like I said, he's the opposite of Herod, and so he admires John's character, and he knows he's a godly man, and he just looks at him, and he, and he thinks, man, I wish I could be like this guy. And, but not only that, he actually listens to John's preaching, gladly. And so he, it says he, will, he would continually take John out of prison so that John could come and tell him he's a sinner. <laughs> you know, just brought him out because he loved for John to come out and just preach to him. And so here's this fascinating situation. Herod is in between John on one side and Herodias on the other. And here's Herodias saying, Herod, I want you to put John to death. And here's John saying, Herod, I want you to put your sin to death. And Herod's in the middle, and he's not going to do either one. And he's kind of doing this balancing act. And what I want you to see is that this is a dangerous compromise. Herod thinks, you know what, I, I love to listen to John, I love to hear the truth, but you know, when it comes to actually doing it, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to kill John, but I'm not going to obey John. You see, he's sitting in this middle ground. When I was younger, um, first becoming a Christian, I was involved in church attendance and drinking wildly at parties. And I was able to do both at the same time. And I remember I would go to church, and my pastor, he would see, I would get little stamps on my hand from going to, to parties. Anybody else do that, Lucas? You know, stamps on my hand, going to parties, and I would, you know, be getting hammered the night before. I would roll into church on Sunday morning, and my youth pet, my pastor would see the little sticker on my hand, and he'd say, what were you doing last night? And so I just straight up told him I was getting hammered. And he said, Brent, you're a mugwump. I said, what is that? And he says, you have your mug on one side of the fence and your wump on the other. You're straddling the fence. And there are many of us who do that week after week after week after week. We come to church. Maybe you like to hear me tell you that you're a sinner. And you might even make a few changes, but you're actually not going to change your life, not really. And you're, and like, you're not going to listen to Herodias, you know, and kill Brent. And you're not going to listen to Brent and kill your sin. You're, you're thinking, I'm going to just compromise. I'm going to be friends with everybody. And so here Herod is torn, engaging in his, his sex, power, and, and intrigue, but also wanting to listen to John. Now, I just wonder how Herod did this. I mean, maybe in his mind he thought, you know, John, I you don't understand. I would do what you want me to do, but you don't understand my family tree. I mean, look at my family. This is just who I am. This is just what I do. I'm a Herod. And, you, you know, my father was like this. My grandfather was like this. And this is just how we are. And you can say whatever you want, but I, there's no, I can't change, even if I wanted to. Or maybe Herod said, you know, um, John, I, I get it, I'm going to change my life, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. We all do that. You know, you're sitting in church, you know there's an area where you've got to change, and you say, you know what, I'll change, but I'll do it tomorrow. You know, and you keep putting it off, and you keep putting it off, and you keep putting it off, but what you're doing is you're straddling the fence. You're involved in a dangerous compromise, just like Herod. And notice it says that Herod here, it says um, in one translation in verse 20, it says that he was greatly perplexed by what John said. But in another translation, it says that he did many things. So this is so interesting. It's, it's like Herod said, look, I'm not going to change the big thing. I know what John wants me to do. He wants me to get rid of Herodias. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to do many other things. 
I might clean up my language. Maybe, I won't, won't have, maybe I'll have one less drink at the, at the office dinner party. Maybe I'll give a little bit money, more money in the tithe box. But you see, he's not going to change the one thing that John has put his finger on. And this is a dangerous situation to be in because sooner or later, there's going to be an opportune moment, which is the second point. When you're living in compromise, when you're trying to, to, to listen to Herodias and John, when you're being a mugwump, there will always come a moment where, where you will have to decide. And notice this happens in verse 21. But an opportune moment, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And so here's this opportune moment. It's one night Herod decides to throw a party. And in the ancient world, uh, birthday parties were pagan affairs. And you would invite all your noblemen and all the people you wanted to impress and all of your uh, you know, people in your social sphere and all, in your social network. And you'd bring them in to, into this big party, show them how impressive you are. And usually there would be, some, uh, uh, you know, a, a prostitute would come in and dance, you know, and kind of uh, titillate everybody's uh, pleasurable, uh, uh, I'm not going to finish that sentence because I don't know how I got to put that up there, but this is what's going on. And then in verse 22, when Herodias' daughter came in and, and she danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. Now this is just a little detail, but Herodias' daughter was also Herod's niece. I mean, this is really gross stuff. This is R-rated. If this was a movie, I wouldn't watch it. I mean, here, this is incestuous. This is debaucherous. Here is this young girl, probably in her teens, coming before Herod to dance with all of his guests. And it says that she pleased Herod. And, king, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And we'll stop there. And so the night of Herod's birthday party, there's an opportune moment. And for all of us who are living in compromise, all of us who are hanging on to sin on one side, refusing to repent, and maybe hanging on to religious activity on the other, there's going to come a moment where you've got to decide there's going to come an opportunity where your, where your weaknesses are exposed. And for Herod, uh, this is sort of a perfect storm. Here's this guy who's, what are Herod's weaknesses? He's, he struggles with lust and power. He's a people pleaser, and he also loves pleasure. And so Herodias, what does she do? She exploits his weakness. She knows where the man is weak. She wants to get rid of John the Baptist, and so she, she exploits his weakness and sends this girl in to dance. And so what are your weaknesses? What are the areas that you in particular struggle with? All of us have diff different areas. Some of us struggle with greed and money. Other, others of us struggle with uh, lust and pleasure. Others struggle with power and and, and uh, maybe a, a violence or something like that. All of us struggle with something. All of us are weak. And the opportune moment is when your weaknesses are exposed and exploited. Uh, there's a great, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, you remember Cain and Abel. 
And uh, Cain was this angry, violent man. I mean, he was jealous. That was his weakness. And his brother Abel, you know, had the sacrifice that was accepted. And there's one point in the book of uh, Genesis 4 where God looks at Cain and says this. If you do well, you... Uh, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. And so why is compromise so dangerous? It's because sin is a crouching tiger and a hidden dragon. <laughs> and it's waiting for that moment to exploit your weakness. There's another place in the New Testament, James 1.4, it says this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so when you make the decision to sin, it's always after a long set of compromises. Like a pregnancy, you know, there's this stage and that stage and that stage, and then James says, sin gives birth. There's this moment where sin comes to fruition, but it comes after a long set of compromises. So sin is crouching at the door. And there, there's a moment waiting for you where sin is going to expose your particular weaknesses. And this is what happened to Herod. Now, uh, you remember there was David in the Old Testament. And uh, David, you, of course, he sinned with Bathsheba. You know, this horrible sin where he killed uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And it was this moment of just, there was this opportune moment that came after a set of compromises. You know, here David, instead of going out to battle as many kings did, he sat at home lazily in his, in his castle. And probably being lazy and maybe entertaining thoughts that he shouldn't have and sort of compromising. And yes, he's still the king, probably he's still going to temple, but he's also sort of straddling the fence. And then there's this one moment, this opportune moment, where David goes up to his rooftop and sees Bathsheba, and of course, her, her husband happens to be gone, and then boom. Sin gives birth, or, or desire gives birth to sin. There's always an opportune moment where your weakness is exploited and exp exposed. I had a friend who, uh, he said that for him, he, he always, you know, sin always gets him when there are three weaknesses he's dealing with. He says, usually when I'm, when I'm on a business trip and I'm tired, and I'm depressed and I'm lonely. He says there's like a perfect storm. And it's almost like the devil is looking for that. And, it, and he pounces on me and exploits me. And so what are your weaknesses? Herod's was sex and power. And this opportune moment came and he was exploited. But also uh, the opportune moment, it not only exploits your weaknesses, it also exposes your ultimate commitments. You know, you sit in church... And day by day, you know, you can live in compromise, and you really don't know what you ultimately are committed to. You know, you really don't know whether it's God or something else. But there are moments of temptation, these moments of, of, of exposure where, where, you, where your ultimate commitments are revealed. And for Herod, his ultimate commitment was, was power and sex, these two things. Now notice that at the end here, uh, the, this Herodias, or I think her name was Salome, this dancing girl, she asked for John the Baptist's head on, the, uh, on a platter, and Herod doesn't want to do it. He likes John, he doesn't want to kill John, but why does he do it? It says that he feared the people. 
And so at the end of the day, Herod had a decision to make here. This situation, this moment, this opportune moment, it brought him to a place where he had to choose between his ultimate commitments. Sure, he liked John, but he also liked sex and power. <laughs> and there came a point where he had to choose between what he was ultimately committed to. And the opportune moment exposes your ultimate commitments. What is it that you're really worshiping? What is it that you're really, that's really controlling you? Uh, Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, uh, she makes this incredible little statement. It's going to come up on the screen. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And so Herod is ultimately controlled by sex and power. This is his idol cluster. These are the things that, that determine the decisions he makes. And there's this opportune moment. Yes, he's compromising, but there comes a point where he has to choose between what is really controlling him. Who's his real Lord? And so who is your real Lord? What are you really living for? And you could compromise, and you could straddle the fence, and you can sit in church, but listen, there will come moments where you're going to have to decide who you're serving, who you're ultimately committed to. And you always make a regrettable, a regrettable decision because you're committed to the wrong thing. Idolatry is at the root of our biggest sins. And so that's the second thing. First, Herod is, is compromising, and then this compromise leads to a decision. I mean, it comes to a point where, listen, he didn't kill sin, so sin went after him. And it always goes after us. If you don't decide about it, if you're sitting in middle land, and you're just straddling the fence, and you're listening to both, eventually you're going to have to make a decision. Eventually sin's going to get you, just like it did Herod. And you're going to do something that you deeply regret. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a long process of small decisions. C.H. Spurgeon said, Sow a thought, reap an action. And sow an action, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a destiny. And so every decision happens because of a long line of small compromises that we make. We need to learn from Herod. But then finally, let's look at the third thing, which is Herod's guilty conscience. After Herod does his deed, after he beheads John the Baptist, we see here that he suffers from a guilty conscience. And really, that's how the story begins and how it ends. This is, it determines the way he thinks about Jesus. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. Why? It's because he feels guilty. And I think of that story uh, by Edgar Allan Poe. You remember the Telltale Heart? Where uh, he, some of you read that in elementary school or high school or whatever, and he's, this man has murdered somebody, and he buries the man under the floorboards of his house. And he keeps on hearing the heartbeat. And he thinks it's coming from under the floorboards, but it's actually his own heart. And it gets so bad, and it gets so loud that he finally turns himself in. Listen, a guilty conscience is a gift from God. You're made in God's image, and you are meant to follow him. And when you do not do that, you will, you will bother yourself. Your conscience will find you out. And there are many of us that are probably dealing with this, maybe even this morning. 
The same Edgar Allan Poe who, read the tale, who wrote The Telltale Heart, there's this joke that he played on 12 of his friends where he sent them a letter without a return address on it that said, um, all is discovered, flee at once. And apparently all 12 of them left the country. <laughs> there are so many of us that are bothered. And some of your guilt is false guilt. You know, as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time convincing people that they shouldn't feel guilty. But there is some guilt that's a gift. And God wants us to listen to our consciences. And so John is dead, but he's still speaking to Herod. And at this point, Herod still has a decision. There's still a way out. Now Herod, at the end of his life, he meets Jesus for the first time. But by that time, all he does is mock Jesus, put him in a, a red robe, and deliver him to be crucified. And it's almost as if Herod was guilty here, but he silenced his guilt to where he got to a point where his conscience was seared. And so John 6 is a warning. Don't end up like Herod. Now John 6, although Jesus is not here, it points ultimately to what Jesus would do for us. Because many scholars point out that the story between Herod and John prefigures the actual crucifixion. Herod is like Pilate, wavering between two things. John is like Jesus, who is put to death wrongly. But where John's death only brings guilt, the death of Jesus enables us to be cleared of our guilt. And there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that means it's never over for any of us. Jesus paid it all. Even the most evil things that you've done, Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man or a woman of any sin. And it's never too late. And so even if you're looking back at your regrettable decision now, maybe you're looking back at your life and you're thinking, I wish I could go back and change it. I wish I could go back. Listen, you can't go back, but you can be forgiven. You can't change what you've done, but the blood of Jesus Christ could change the leper's spots and wash you white as snow. And when you look at the Bible, there are Herods that never repent, but there are Peters and there are Davids and there are all sorts of sordid, ugly people that have been cleansed completely by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story, this ugly, callow, sordid story that gives us a picture into the regrettable decisions that we all make. Not all of us are as bad as Herod, but Lord, the patterns that work in his life can be at work in our own lives and Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, I pray that if we're in the middle of that, Lord, that you'd help us to recognize the compromises and flee the opportune moments. And God, if we're on the other side, I pray that you'd bring us to a place of honesty and truth, of confession and repentance. And we thank you, Lord, that the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of your son Jesus, has made a way for all of us, Lord, to walk in newness of life, to get a, a slate wiped clean, ways for us to start brand new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.